we have finished uh, a couple of long documents on the atonement in Ellen White's writings. And we decided to spend these last two Sabbaths on a very important topic, and that is what implications do the two models that we've been discussing, the legal model and the more experiential model, what do those two what do those two have to do with the way we live our lives, the way we do things, and, uh, the way we execute justice, for example? Uh, how do we deal with crime in each of those two models? And because the, the fallback that we have long had in America and in every culture and every country and every time and place has been that we had a fallback of the legal model as the kind of this is what we have to do to corral and control crime and to protect ourselves. Uh, we have to use force. There's no other way around it. And so we're going to be looking at this uh, critically, I hope, a story that is in a new, the New York Times <clears throat> called Can Forgiveness Play a Role in Criminal Justice? And it's a story, a very sad story, of a murderer who in an impulse of despair and rage uh, killed his girlfriend. And we'll be reading this story, and then we'll, there's some questions that I have to hand out uh, following that. So let us begin. Um, we'll go around. Why don't we go clockwise this time? And I'll begin with the first paragraph, and then we'll continue to read. At 2.15 in the afternoon on March 28, 2010, Connor McBride, a tall, sandy-haired 19-year-old wearing jeans, a T-shirt, and New Balance sneakers, walked into the Tallahassee Police Department and approached the desk in the main lobby. Gina Maddox, the officer on duty, noticed that he looked upset and asked him how she could help. You need to arrest me, McBride answered. I just shot my fiancé in the head. When Maddox, taken aback, didn't respond right away, McBride added, This is not a joke. Maddox called Lieutenant Jim Montgomery, the watch commander, to her desk and told him what she had just heard. He asked McBride to sit in his office where the young man began to weep. About an hour earlier his at his parents' house, McBride shot Anne Margaret Grossmare, his girlfriend of three years. Anne was a tall 19-year-old with long blonde hair and, like McBride, a student at Tallahassee Community College. The couple had been fighting for 38 hours in person, by text message and over the phone. They fought about the mundane things that many couples might fight about, but instead of resolving their differences or shaking them off, they kept it up for two nights and two mornings, culminating in the moment that McBride shot Grossmare, who was on her knees in the face. Her last words were, no, don't. Friends couldn't believe the news. Grossmere was no known as the empathetic listener of her group, the one in whom others would confide their problems, though she didn't often reveal her own. McBride had been selected for the youth group leadership program through the Tallahassee Chamber of Commerce and was a top student at Leon High School, where he and Grossmere met. He had never been in any serious trouble. Rod Durham, who taught Connor and Anne in theater classes, and was close to both, told me that when he saw Connor shot Anne in the text message, I was like, what? Is there another Connor and Anne? At the police station, Connor gave Montgomery the key to his parents' house. He had left Anne, certain he had killed her, but she was still alive, though unresponsive, when the county sheriff's deputies and police arrived. 
That night, Andy Grosmere, Anne's father, stood beside his daughter's bed in the intensive care unit of the Tallahassee Memorial Hospital. The room was silent except for the rhythmic whoosh of the ventilator keeping her alive. Anne had some brainstem function, the doctor said, and although her parents, who were practicing Catholics, held out hope, it was clear to Andy that unless God did wondrous things, Anne would not survive her injuries. Anne's mother, Kate, had gone home to try to get some sleep, so Andy was alone in the room, praying fervently over his daughter, just listening, he says, for the first word that may come out. Anne's face was covered in bandages, and she was intubated and unconscious, but Andy felt her say, forgive him. His response was immediate. No, he said out loud. No way. It's impossible. But Andy kept hearing his daughter's voice. Forgive him. Forgive him. Anne, the last of the Grossmare's three children, was still living at home, and Connor had become almost a part of their family. He lived at their house for several months when he wasn't getting along with his own parents, and Andy, a financial regulator for the state of Florida, called in a favor when a friend, from a friend to get Connor a job. When the police told Kate her daughter had been shot and taken to the hospital, her immediate reaction was to ask if Connor was with her, hoping he could comfort her daughter. The Grossmeyers fully expected him to be the father of their grandchildren. Still, when Andy heard his daughter's instruction, he told her, You're asking too much. Connor's parents were in Panama City, a hundred miles away, on a vacation with their 16-year-old daughter when they got the call from the Tallahassee police. Michael McBride, a database administrator for the Florida Department of Transportation, and Julie, his wife, who teaches art in elementary school, knew one of them would need to stay with Connor's sister, Katie, who is developmentally disabled. It was decided that Michael would drive to Tallahassee alone. I put the car in, the, in reverse to pull out of the driveway, Michael told me, and the last thing Julie said to me was, go to the hospital, go to the hospital. At the freeway on-ramp, he says he thought he should stop to throw up first. He had to pull over and vomit five more times before arriving at Tallahassee Memorial. The hallway outside Anne's room was absolutely packed with people, and Michael became overwhelmed, feeling like a cartoon character, shrinking. During the drive, he hadn't thought about what he would actually do when he got to the hospital, and he had to take deep breaths to stave off nausea and lean against the wall for support. Andy approached Michael and, to the surprise of both men, hugged him. I can't tell you what I was thinking, Andy says, but what I told him was, that, was how I felt at that moment. Thank you for being here, Andy told Michael, but I might hate you by the end of the week. I knew that we were somehow together on this journey, Andy says now. Something had happened to our families, and I knew being together rather than being apart was going to be more of what I needed. Four days later, Anne's condition had not improved, and her parents decided to remove her from life support. Andy says he was in the hospital room praying when he felt a connection between his daughter and Christ, like Jesus on the cross. She had wounds on her hand, head and hand. Anne had instinctively reached to block the gunshot and lost fingers. Anne's parents strive to model their lives on those of Jesus and St. Augustine, and forgiveness is deep in their creed. I realized it was not just Anne asking me to forgive Connor. It was Jesus Christ, Andy recalls. And I hadn't said no to him before, and I wasn't going to start then. It was just a wave of joy, and I told Anne, I will, I will. Jesus or no Jesus, he says. What father can say no to his daughter? When Connor was booked, he was told to give the names of five people who would be permitted to visit him in jail. 
and he put Anne's mother, Kate, on the list. Connor says he doesn't know why he did so. I was in a state of shock, but knowing she could visit put a burden on Kate. At first, she didn't want to see him at all, but that feeling turned to willingness and then to a need. Before this happened, I loved Connor, she says. I knew that if I defined Connor by that one moment as a murderer, I was defining my daughter as a murder victim, and I could not allow that to happen. She asked her husband if he had a message for Connor. Tell him I love him and forgive him, he answered. Kate told me I wanted to be able to give him the same message. Connor owed us a debt he could never repay, and releasing him from that debt would release us from expecting that anything in the world could satisfy us. Visitors to Leon County Jail sit in a row of chairs before a reinforced glass partition facing the inmates on the other side, like the familiar setup seen in the movies. Kate took the seat opposite Connor, and he immediately told her how sorry he was. They both sobbed, and Kate told him what she had come to say. All during that emotional quarter of an hour, another woman in the visiting area had been loudly berating an inmate, her significant other, through the glass. After Connor and Kate had had our moment, as Kate puts it, they both found the woman screaming impossible to ignore. Maybe it was catharsis after the tears, or the need to release an unbearable tension, but the endless stream of invective somehow struck the two of them as funny. Kate and Connor both started to laugh. Then Kate went back to the hospital to remove her daughter from life support. Unfortunately, I have a lot of experience talking to the parents of dead people, says Jack Campbell, the Leon County assistant state attorney who handles many of the North, many of North Florida's high-profile murder cases. Sheriff's deputies who were investigating the case told Campbell that the gross mare's feelings toward the accused were unusual. But Campbell was not prepared for how their first meeting, two months after Anne's death, would change the course of Connor's prosecution. Campbell had charged Connor with first-degree murder, which, as most people in Florida understand it, carries a mandatory life sentence, or potentially the death penalty. He told the Grossners that he wouldn't seek capital punishment, because, as he told me later, I didn't have aggravating circumstances like prior conviction, the victim being a child, or the crime being particularly heinous, and the like. As he always does with victims' families. He explained to the Grossmeyers the details of the criminal justice process, including the little advertised fact that the state attorney has broad uh, discretion to depart from the state's mandatory sentences. As the representative of the state and the person tasked with finding justice for Anne, he could reduce charges and seek alternative sentences. Technically, he told the Grossmeyers, if I wanted to do five years for manslaughter, I can do that. Kate sat up straight and looked at Campbell. What, she asked? Campbell believing she she had misunderstood and thought he was suggesting that Connor serve a term of just five years, tried to reassure her. No, 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 he said. I would never do that. It was just an example of how much latitude Florida prosecutors have in a murder case. What Campbell didn't realize was that the Grosmeres didn't want Connor to spend his life in prison. The exchange in Campbell's office turned their understanding of Connor's situation upside down and gave them an unexpected challenge to grapple with. It was easy to think, poor Connor, I wouldn't have... Want, I wouldn't want him to spend his life in prison, but he's going to have to, Kate says. Now Jack Campbell's telling me he doesn't have to, so what are you going to do? He's so sorry he said that, Kate says now of Campbell. I mean, it opened the door for us. Most modern justice systems focus on a crime, a lawbreaker, and a punishment. But a concept called restorative justice considers harm done and strives for agreement from all concerned, 
the victims, the offender, and the community on making amends. And it allows victims, who often feel shut out of the prosecutorial process, a way to be heard and participate. In this country, a restorative justice takes a number of forms, but perhaps the most prominent is restorative justice diversion. There are not many of these programs. A few exist in the margins of the justice system in communities like Baltimore, Minneapolis, and Oakland, California. But according to a University of Pennsylvania study in 2007, they have been effective at reducing recidivism. Typically, a facilitator meets separately with the accused and the victim, and if both are willing to meet face-to-face without animosity, and the offender is deemed willing and able to complete restitution, then the case shifts out of the adversarial legal system and into a parallel restorative justice process. All parties, the offender, victim, facilitator, and law enforcement, come together in a form sometimes called a restorative community conference. Each person speaks, one at a time and without interruption, about the crime and its effects, and the participants come to a consensus about how to repair the harm done. The methods are mostly applied in less serious crimes, like property offenses in which the wrong can be clearly righted, stolen property returned, vandalized material replaced. The processes are designed to be flexible enough to handle violent crime like assault, but they are rarely used in those situations. And no one I spoke to had ever heard of restorative justice applied for anything as serious as murder. The Grosmers had learned about restorative justice from Allison DeFour, an Episcopal priest who works as a chaplain in the Florida prison system, and before that worked as sheriff, public defender, prosecutor, and judge. Andy, who is studying to become a deacon, heard about DeFour and a church friend and turned to him for guidance. When Andy told DeFour that he wanted to help the accused, DeFour suggested he look into restorative justice. The problem, DeFour says, was the whole system was not designed to do any of what the Grosmers were wanting. He considered restorative justice, of any kind, much less for murder, impossible in a law and order state. We are nowhere near ready for this in Florida right now, DeFore told me. Most people would go, huh? And most conservatives would go, ew. But as a man of the cloth, he said he believed there was always hope. He suggested the families find the national expert on restorative justice and hire him. By midsummer, Andy Grosmere was meeting Michael McBride regularly for lunch. He knew that, in a way, the McBrides had lost a child, too. At one of these lunches, he told Michael about restorative justice. Maybe this could be a way to help Connor. Julie McBride, who wasn't sleeping much anyway, started spending late nights online looking for the person who might be able to help them change their son's fate. Her research led her to Sujatha Baliga, a former public defender who is now the director of the Restorative Justice Project at the National Council on Crime and Delinquency in Oakland. Baliga was born and raised in Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, the youngest child of Indian immigrants. From as far back as Baliga could remember, she was sexually abused by her father. In her early teens, Baliga started dyeing her hair blue and cutting herself. She thought she hated herself because of her outcast status in in her community, in which she was one of the few non-white children in her school. But then, at At age 14, two years before her father died of a heart attack, she fully realized the cause of her misery. What her father had been doing was terribly wrong. 
Despite the torments of her childhood, Baliga excelled in school. As an undergraduate at Harvard Radcliffe, she was fairly certain she wanted to become a prosecutor and lock up child molesters. After college, she moved to New York and worked with battered women. When her boyfriend won a scholarship to start school in Mumbai, she decided to follow him while waiting to hear if she had been accepted at law school. Baliga had been in therapy in New York, but while in India, she had what she calls a total breakdown. She remembers thinking, oh my God, I've got to fix myself before I start law school. She decided to take a train to Dharamsala, the Himalayan city that is home to a large Tibetan exile community. There she heard Tibetans recount horrific stories of losing their loved ones as they were trying to escape the invading Chinese army. She told me, women getting raped, children made to kill their parents, unbelievably awful stuff. And I would ask them, how are you even standing, let alone smiling? And everyone would say, forgiveness. And they're like, what are you so angry about? And I told them, and they'd say, that's actually pretty crazy. The family that operated the guest house where Baliga was staying told her that people often wrote to the Dalai Lama for advice and suggested she try it. Baliga wrote something like, Anger is killing me, but it motivates my work. How do you work on behalf of oppressed and abused people without anger as the motivating force? She dropped the letter off at a booth by the front gate to the Dalai Lama's compound and was told to come back in a week or so. When she did, instead of getting a letter, Baliga was invited to meet with the Dalai Lama, the winner of the 1989 Nobel Peace Prize, privately for an hour. He gave her two pieces of advice. First was to meditate. She said she could do that. The second, she says, was to align myself with my enemy, to consider opening up my heart to them. I laughed out loud. I'm like, I'm going to law school to lock those guys up. I'm not aligning myself with anybody. He pats me on the knee and says, okay, just meditate. Baliga returned to the United States and signed up for an intensive 10-day meditation course. On the final day, she had a spontaneous experience, not unlike Andy Grossmere's at his daughter's deathbed, of total forgiveness with her father. Sitting cross-legged on an easy chair in her home in Berkeley, California last winter, she described the experience as a complete relinquishment of anger, hatred, and the desire for retribution and revenge. After law school at the University of Pennsylvania, Valiga clerked for a federal judge in Vermont. That's when I first saw restorative justice in action, she says. The second part of the Dalai Lama's prescription would be fulfilled after all. Early in 2011, Julia McBride called Baliga, who patiently explained why restorative justice wasn't going to happen for her son. This is a homicide case, Baliga told Julie. It's in the Florida panhandle. We don't know anybody who does this level of victim offense dialogue. And I don't think there even is victim offender dialogue in Florida, period. Just forget it. This is never going to happen. We want to hire you, Julie insisted. We do burglaries, robberies, Baliga protested. No gun charges, no homicides, no rape. There's no way. There's never been a murder case that's gone through restorative justice. But Julie wouldn't let it go. I think you'll just fall in love with the Grosmeers, she told Baliga. You just need to talk to them. I'm not going to cold call them, Baliga responded. Oh, no, no, Julie said. They, they told me about restorative justice. They want all this to happen. I'm just doing the legwork because they lost their daughter. Okay, so wait, what? You're talking to them? Baliga says she thought that Julie McBride was maybe a little deluded, traumatized, as she must have been by what her son had done. She agreed to speak with the Grosmeers only if they called her, and within minutes of hanging up with Julie, her phone rang. Kate was on the other end. Kate told her how Connor almost immediately turned himself in, and about Michael's coming to the hospital before going to see his son in jail. 
I first believe it says, I had mistrust of the potential for people to be this amazing. After a few minutes of talking with them, though, she says, I just couldn't keep saying no. A conference call was quickly arranged that included the McBrides, the Grossmeyers, Beliga, DeFore, and Connor's lawyer, a capital crime specialist named Greg Cummings. Beliga was asking questions, trying to figure out how her diversion process might work in Florida, where nothing like it existed. Then, DeFore had an idea. What about the pre-plea conference? Right away, the lawyers knew this could work. A pre-plea conference is a meeting between the prosecutor and the defendant's lawyer at which a plea deal is worked out to bring to a, a judge. Anyone can attend. It's off the record, and nothing said can be used in court. All of those conditions would also fulfill the requirements of a restorative justice community conference. The only obstacle that remained, and everyone knew it was a big one, was the prosecutor, Jack Campbell. The Grosmere's request was not without risk to Campbell. He is ambitious and approving of uh, and approving an alternative justice process brought by a woman from California that might result in a murderer receiving a lighter sentence than most likely make him appear soft on crime. On the other hand, opposing a church deacon asking for mercy for his daughter's murderer has its own problems, DeFore says, but the safe course was for Jack Campbell to say no. The circumstances did not lend themselves to him being bold. Campbell did his own research, and once satisfied that the conference wouldn't violate his own oath, he says, the duty I owed to every other parent and every other child in this town, he called Cummings, Connor's lawyer, whom he knew and respected, to work out the details. Campbell told Cummings he would not necessarily abide by whatever wishes the other parties had regarding sentencing. Just because I'm participating, he told Cummings, doesn't mean that I'm going to sign off on the product of this meeting. The day of the conference, June 22, 2011, was hot and humid. The Liga and the Grosmeres arrived first at the small room inside Leon County Jail, where the meeting would take place. The Liga felt it important that Anne be represented at the conference. So while she arranged the molded plastic chairs in a circle, the Grosmeres placed a number of Anne's belongings on the in the center of the room. A blanket Anne's best friend had crocheted for her, the Thespian of the Year trophy she won during senior year, a plaster cast of Anne's uninjured hand. After the McBrides, the lawyers, a victim's advocate, and the Grosmeres priest, the Reverend Michael Foley, Mike Foley from the Good Shepherd Catholic Church arrived. Beliga asked the jailers to bring in Connor. Kate and Julie rose from their chairs. Connor stood awkwardly, not sure whether to go or whether uh, or or what to do. Connor, Beliga said, "You go go hug your mother. Jail policy is that there be no physical contact between inmates and visitors." But Baliga had persuaded the sheriff to make an exception. He had not touched his parents in 15 months. He hugged them and then returned to the Grossmeyers. Kate and Andy had continued to visit Connor periodically. Kate particularly wanted to be with him on Anne's birthday. Now he hugged them too. Baliga laid out the ground rules. Campbell would read the charges and summarize the police and sheriff's reports. Next, the Grosmeres would speak, then Connor, then the McBrides, and finally Foley, representing the community. No one was to interrupt. Baliga showed a picture of Anne sticking out her tongue as she looks at the camera. If her parents heard anything Anne wouldn't like, they would hold up the picture to silence the offending party. Everyone seemed to feel the weight of what was happening.
The Grosmere spoke of Anne, her life, and how her death affected them. We went from when she was being born all the way up, Andy says. He spoke of what Anne loved to do, like acting and the things that were important in her life. She loved kids. She was our only daughter who wanted to give us grandchildren. She had talked of opening wildlife refuge after college. To me, she had really grown up, and she was a woman, Andy says. She was ready to go out and find her place in the world. That's the part that makes me most sad. Kate described nursing Anne. She told of how Anne had a lazy eye and wore a patch as a little girl. We worked for her to have good vision so she could drive and do all the things when all these things when she grew up. It's another thing that she that's an, it's another thing that's lost with her death. You worked so hard to send her off into the world, and what was the purpose of that now? She did not spare Connor in any way the cost of what he did, but Liga remembers. There were no kid gloves, none. It was really, really tough. Way tougher than anything a judge could say. It was excruciating to listen to them talk, Campbell said. To look at the photo there, I still see her. It was as traumatic as anything I've ever listened to in my life. Connor was no less affected. Hearing the pain in their voices and what my actions had done really opened my eyes to what I have caused, Connor told me later. They were all like, All right, Connor, it's on you. And I had to give an account of what I did. He leaned forward, placed his elbows on his knees, and looked directly at the Grossmeers, who were seated opposite him. It was difficult to get started, but once he did, the story came out of him in one long flow. Anne and Connor fought on Friday night. Connor was tired and had homework and things to do the next day, so he wanted to drive home and turn in early. This was a frequent point of contention. Anne being more of a night person, he told me later, was sort of an ongoing issue. He promised to return to Anne's house to make breakfast, but when he overslept the next day, the fight continued. They fought by phone and text and tried to make up with a picnic that evening. Anne was excited about a good grade she got in class and brought champagne glasses and San Pellegrino Limonata to celebrate. But Connor forgot about the grade, and he recalled at the conference how disappointed Anne was. It just all fell apart from there, he told me. After sunset, they went back to his parents' house, but Connor fell asleep in the middle of a conversation. Sunday morning rolls around, and I wake up, and she's already awake and just pissed at me, he recalled. The fight continued up from where it had left off. At some point, this must have been hours later, it escalated to the point where she got all her stuff, walked out the door, and she was just like, look, I'm done, I'm leaving. Connor and Anne met in chemistry class during their sophomore year in high school, and in some ways their relationship was still adolescent. They were in love and devoted to each other, but there was also a dependence that bordered on the obsessive. They were spending so much time together senior year that Connor was fired from his job for frequently not showing up, and his father told me of wild swings of their relationship. There was also constant fighting. They were, they were both good kids, Julie McBride says, but they were not good together. Kate Grosner put it another way. It's like the argument became the relationship. Connor was prone to bursts of irrational rage and never told her parents that he had struck her several times. Michael now feels, with searing regret, that he presented a bad example of bad-tempered behavior. Connor learned how to be angry, is how he put it to me. We never talked about it, you know, Connor told me. We never tried to be like, why do you do this and why do you do that? Or, this is how I'm really feeling. That kind of communication just wasn't there. When Anne got up to leave that Sunday morning, Connor says it wasn't clear to him if she was leaving him or just leaving. But in any case, he noticed Anne had left her water bottle, and he followed her to the driveway to give it to her. He found Anne in the car, crying. As Connor related it to me and to Anne's parents that day, 
and said to him, You don't love me. You don't care. Connor leaned his head through the window, exasperated. What do you want from me all of this? He asked. What do you want to happen? I just want you to die, she said. Connor went back in the house, locked the door, went to his father's closet, pulled his shotgun down from a shelf, unlocked it, went to another room where the ammunition was kept, and loaded the gun. He sat down in the living room, put the gun under his chin, and his finger on the trigger. I just felt so frustrated, helpless and angry, Connor says. I was just so sick and tired of fighting. I wanted us to work out just because, I mean, I love the girl. I still do. I was so torn. This was the girl that just said she wants me to die. I'm sick of the fighting. I just want to die. And yet I love her. And if I kill myself, she might do something to herself. All of these thoughts were running through his head when Anne started banging on the door. Connor stood up, placed the weapon on the table, and let her in. They went into his bedroom, and a few minutes later, Connor went to get her something to drink. When he returned, he found her lying on the couch, breathing in a way that seemed to indicate distress. Her mysterious behavior made him so angry that he started screaming, Let me help you! Tell me what's wrong! Connor says that he would frequently fall into this wrathful anger, and on this day, there was so much anger, and I kept snapping. Anne started sobbing, saying that Connor didn't care and that she wanted to die. At this point, I just lost it, Connor says. He left the room and got the gun. Anne started to follow him, but she may have stumbled or tripped because when Connor returned with the gun, she was on her knees halfway between the couch and the door. Connor was frustrated, exhausted, and angry, and not thinking straight at all. He pointed the gun at her, thinking, he says, that he could scare her so that maybe she would snap out of it. Is this what you want, he yelled. Do you want to die? No, don't. Anne held out her hand. Connor fired. As Connor told the story, Andy's whole body began to shake. Let me get this right, he said, and asked about Anne being on her knees. Veliga remembers Andy's demeanor at this moment. Andy is a very gentle person, but there was a way at that moment that he was extremely strong. There is just this incredible force of the strong, protective, powerful father coursing through him. Connor answered, clarifying precisely how helpless Anne was at the moment he took her life. The Grossmares remember that at this point, Campbell suggested a break. Campbell told me that he understood the process was going to be horrific and that he was the only one present with the power to halt it. During the break, he approached the Grossmares in the hallway. You all had enough, he asked. I'm here for you all, and I don't mind being the heavy. Kate thanked him, but declined his offer to end the conference early. As Campbell backed away, Baliga approached the Grossmares. I thought it was going to make sense, Andy told her. Later, Andy told me that he had fantasized or hoped that maybe it had been an accident. Maybe Connor's finger had slipped that he would hear something unexpected to him to help him make sense of his daughter's death. But Connor's recitation didn't bring the kind of solace. When the group returned to the circle, Connor continued. He didn't try to shirk responsibility at the conference or in long conversations with me about the murder. What I did was inexcusable, he told me. There's no why there is no excuses, there is no reason. He told Anne's parents that he had no plans to shoot their daughter. Still, he said, on some subconscious level, I guess, I, I wanted it all to end. 
I don't know what happened. Emotions were overwhelming. He said he didn't remember deciding to pull the trigger, but he recognizes that it wasn't an accident either. Connor said he stood there, ears ringing with the smell of gunpowder in the air. The thought came into his head that he ought to kill himself, but he couldn't master the will. Instead, he left the house and drove around in a daze until he decided to turn himself in. Julie McBride was devastated. I was sitting right next to him. It was awful to hear and to know. This is my son telling this. This is my son who did this. <clears throat> when it was Michael McBride's turn to speak, sorrow overtook him, and he told the group that if he had ever thought his shotgun would have harmed another person, he never would have kept it. Kate Grosmer didn't bring it up at the conference, but she says she had thought a lot about that gun. If that gun had not been in the house, our daughter would be alive, she told me. When everyone had spoken, Belega turned to the Grosmers and acknowledging their immediate loss, she asked what they would like to see happen to attempt restitution. Kate looked at Connor and with great emotion told him that he would need to do the good works of two people because Anne is not here to do hers. The punitive element came last. Before the conference, Kate, who doesn't put much stock in the rehabilitative possibilities of prison, told Belega that she would suggest a five-year sentence. Listening to Connor, however, she began to feel different, and when she was called on to speak, she said he should receive no less than five years, no more than 15. Andy Grossmeyer, sitting beside his wife, went next. He was so deeply affected by what he had heard, it was all he could do to say 10 to 15 years. The McBrides concurred. Connor said he didn't think he should have a say. All eyes turned to Campbell. The, a restorative justice circle is supposed to conclude what a consensus is decision, but Campbell refused to suggest a punishment. He only said he heard what was discussed and would take it under consideration. I think the ultimate decision on punishment should be made based on cool reflection of the facts and the evidence in the case, Campbell told me later. I don't think those conferences are the best prison for that. The Grosmers were deeply disappointed. Andy in particular imagined that at the end of the conference circle would be the beginning of a young man's redemption. They expected a plea bargain that would be struck and they could go on. Instead, they had no idea where Campbell stood. Had the circle really worked, Kate asked? Campbell would consult with community leaders, the head of the local domestic violence shelter, and others before arriving at the sentence that he would offer McBride. He told me that his boss, um, Willie Meggs, the state attorney who Campbell once believed would never sign off on a sentence of less than 40 years for Connor, was extremely supportive once he understood the Grossmere's perspective. He wanted to be sure I had gone through the proper analysis, Campbell says, and that it was for the right motivations, because he knew there would be a backlash. Three weeks after the conference, citing Connor's senseless act of domestic violence, Campbell wrote the Grosmers to inform them he would offer Connor a choice, a 20-year sentence plus 10 years of probation or 25 years in pr prison. Connor took the 20 years plus probation. Campbell told me that in arriving at those numbers, he f needed to feel certain that a year or 20 years down the road, I could tell someone somebody why I did it. Because if Connor gets out in 20 years and goes and kills his next girlfriend, I screwed up terrible. So I hope I'm right. In March, the Grossmers invited me to their house on Tallahassee's northern fringe. We sat down in their living room near a modest shrine to Anne. Items that represented her at the conference are there, along with her cell phone and a small statue of an angel that Kate splurged for not long after Anne's death that reminds her of Anne. The Grossmers said they didn't forgive Connor for his sake, but for their own. Everything I feel, I, f I can feel because we forgave Connor, Kate said. Because we could forgive, people can say her name. People can think about my daughter, and they don't have to think, 
Oh, the murdered girl. I think that when they, when people can't forgive, they're stuck. All they can feel is the emotion surrounding that moment. I can be sad, but I don't have to stay stuck in the moment where that awful thing happened. Because if I do, I may never come out of it. Forgiveness for me was self-preservation. Still, their forgiveness affected Connor, too, and not only in the obvious way of reducing his sentence. With the Grosmere's forgiveness, he told me, I could accept the responsibility and not be condemned. Forgiveness doesn't make him, him any less guilty, and it doesn't absolve him from what he did, but in refusing to become Connor's enemy, the Grosmere's deprived him of a certain kind of refuge, of feeling abandoned and hated, and placed the reckoning for the crime squarely in his hands. I spoke to Connor for six hours over three days in a prison administrator's office at the Liberty Correctional Institution near Tallahassee. At one point, he sat with his hands and fingers open in front of him as if he were holding something. Eyes cast downward, he said, There are moments when you realize, I am in prison. I am in prison because I killed someone. I am in prison because I killed the girl I loved. Connor got a job at the prison's law library. He spends a lot of his time reading novels by George R. R. Martin, the author of the Game of Thrones series. He enrolled voluntarily in the anger management class offered at the prison and continues to meet with his classmates since completing it. He told me that when he gets out, he plans to volunteer in animal shelters because Anne loved animals. As a condition of his probation, Connor would be required to speak to local groups about teen dating violence. His parents visited him regularly, and they talk on the phone almost every day. They talk about his sister, Katie, baseball and food, Michael says, as well as the issues he needs to focus on to come out a better person than he was when he went in. As long as I'm self-motivated enough, Connor says, I can really improve myself. The Grosmeres come, too, once a month. I'm not worried about him getting out in 20 years at all, Beliga told me. We got to look more deeply at the root of, the, of where this behavior came from than we would have had it gone a trial route. The anger issues in the family, exploring, exploring the drama in their relationship, the whole conglomeration of factors that led to that moment. And there's no explaining what happened, but there was just a much more nuanced conversation about it, which can give everyone more confidence that Connor will never do this again. And the Grosmeres got the answers to questions that would have been difficult to impossible to get in a trial. Not everyone felt comfortable with the restorative justice circle or how it resolved. There were angry letters on local news sites denouncing the sentence as too light. And sisters supported their parents' decision to forgive Connor and seek restorative justice but declined to participate in the process. They also declined to speak to me. In hindsight... Kate sees the restorative justice process as a sort of end in itself. Just being able to have the circle made it a success, Kate said. Andy felt a little differently. Hearing Connor, he said, I made sounds I've never heard myself make. To hear that your daughter was on the floor saying no and holding her hands up and still to be shot, it's, it's, just, it's just not. He tried to explain the horror of such knowledge, but it's not easy. Even experiencing the deaths of other family members, he said, has given him no context to understand what happened to Anne. And he doesn't attribute Anne's death to God's plan and rolls his eyes that God just wanted another angel sentimentality. But not being stuck in anger seems to give the Grosmers the emotional distance necessary to grapple with such questions without the gravity of their grief pulling them into a black hole. 
I talked a lot to Kate and Andy over several months. They don't intellectualize what happened or repress emotions. I saw them cry and heard them laugh, but they were always able to speak thoughtfully about Anne's death and its aftermath. As much as the Grossmayers say that forgiveness helped them, so too has a story of their forgiveness. They've spoken about it to church groups and prayer breakfasts around Tallahassee and plan to do more talks. The story is a signpost in the wilderness, something solid and decent they can return to while wandering in, in this parallel universe without their youngest daughter. Kate Grossmayer keeps asking herself if she really has forgiven Connor. I think about it all the time, she said. Is that forgiveness still there? Have I released that debt? Even as the answer comes back, yes, she says it can't erase her awareness of what she no longer has. Forgiving Connor doesn't change the fact that Anne is not with us. My daughter was shot, and she died. I walk by her empty bedroom at least twice a day. I'm going to go ahead and pass out these questions. I don't know if you want to take any time to even answer the first one, but I thought I'd at least hand them out. The first question I have is what elements in the story are experiential and related to a trust healing model of atonement. I know that might take some time to think through. The circle is experiential, right? Because everybody everybody says there's nothing definite that came out of it, but everybody can say, express their feelings in a better way. Okay. And, and along with that is the fact that they can tell their story. And stories are experiences. Anything else that came out of that that was uh, related to an experiential or trust healing model? Um, I guess I was really struck by the way they treated um, Connor, in a sense. They, they had hope in his character and hope of redemption instead of just kind of categorizing him as a, like a hopeless criminal. Yeah, that raises a good question. Does the, in the legal model, do you expect redemption? Mm. And now in atonement, theology, uh, legal theology, yes, you do. But the, it's legally done. that, And it's, it's considered objective apart from the person. It does not involve him in the process, except as a response to that process. I mean, one of the things that struck me in this story is n- near the end, uh, the writer talks about how through this process, they got to look at all possible factors that contributed to this murder that never would have come up in trial, like Connor's family's own anger issue problems, the fact that his father may have taught him uh, how to be kind of burst out in anger and this kind of stuff. And it brought up the fights that they that, that Connor and his girlfriend had uh, and how they kind of didn't even, they couldn't give that up, and that contributed too. Um, and I was just struck on how this kind of stuff, if it had been used... Uh, in a trial, it would have been used for a guilty or not guilty verdict, not for any kind of how can we restore Connor. Yeah. And I I would like to point you to something, if I can find it. And that was how he was able to really face what he had done. It said that he was able to really grapple with, I did this, I, I did this murder, and, and accept the consequences. There's some really powerful statements in the story about that. 
but unfortunately I didn't mark a copy to be able to help you with that. But uh, the other thing was, too, their, their reasoning throughout this whole process, their reasoning from cause and effect. What led him to do this? So they're looking in terms of, of descriptive law, as it were. Uh, descriptive law doesn't just work in, for goodness and for righteousness. Descriptive law works in the sin process. It, it, we have to look for the cause-effect relationships that are behind things that we do that mistreat other people. So I, I think there's a very strong uh, case to be made that this approach really brings out moral responsibility rather than imposing guilt. And, and that's a key, very key element in, in looking at these two models. Well, I think this is a good stopping point. I would like you to look over the questions. You can take the story with you, of course. Uh, look over the questions and, and think about what you'd like to discuss in terms of the, there's a lot of questions here uh, that we can discuss next Sabbath. And we'll meet at 9.45 in the Religion Department. Mint. 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 Mint.